from KPMG, this is Global Perspectives with Jillian Tech. Hello and welcome to Global Perspectives, the podcast series from KPMG, which is focused on big international issues and inspiring leaders to create a more sustainable world where CEOs and their companies can flourish. On this month's episode, we're going to hear from a business anthropologist who has a passion for culture change and trying to understand why cultures sometimes don't work. For almost three decades, she's been championing a topic that arguably is only now taking hold in boardrooms. She's Elizabeth Bridey. So, Elizabeth, thanks for joining us on Global Perspectives. And the topic I really want to talk to you about today is something which many company leaders are struggling with, which is that we live in a global world. We are all very good at jamming together different groups of people on Zoom, in boardrooms, in factory floors, in everyday life. And yet, although we live in a global world, time and again, we have problems with people misunderstanding each other, with teams clashing. So I'd like to start off by getting you to tell a little story which you first got involved with um, almost two and a half decades ago at GM, looking at what happened when GM tried to put together a team of three different groups of engineers to build a car. Um, First of all, what were you doing as an anthropologist, sir? What was your role? Uh, my role was to be an anthropologist and to try to understand what was going on within this uh, vehicle program. Uh, the program was uh, intent on building a small car that could be sold in various markets around the world. And so, as you said, three teams had been assembled, two from the U.S. and one from Germany. Uh, they were located in Michigan, uh, working together. and. Um, and there were problems. And so, so normally when people say there's problems, you know, you get the C-suite saying, well, listen, these teams aren't working together. Let's write a few memos and tell them all to collaborate um, and to hold a bunch of meetings to sort it out. What happened when you started observing as an anthropologist what was going on? Well, before I started observing, I found uh, when I got there that a German guy came up to me and said, you know, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm just trying to understand what's going on on this vehicle program. And he started talking. And when he did, he said, if you're an anthropologist, you should have been here earlier today. I was at a meeting and it was a classic. And when he said that, he pounded his fist down on the table. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, something's going on here. The issue for this German man was that meetings were not being held the way he felt they should have been held. In Germany, or at least at this firm, Opel, at the time, meetings took place when you were basically ready to make a decision. And and when you were at that meeting, there was a very strict agenda and there were many meeting minutes that followed. None of that happened at this particular meeting, which caused frustration for him. So why didn't that happen? Because 
you know, meetings are one of these everyday corporate rituals that we all just take for granted. And we all think that everyone knows what a meeting is. Um, why wasn't the Germans' idea of a meeting actually playing out? It wasn't playing out because the Germans, like the Americans, assumed that everyone held the same kinds of meetings. So the first rule is don't make assumptions. You really need to pay attention, observe, and understand what's going on before you try to intervene and change anything. So, so how were the other people actually holding meetings? I mean, the Germans thought a meeting should have an agenda and you only had a meeting when everyone had decided everything already. What did the two other teams think about how meetings should actually take place? Well, one of the American teams, um, referred to as small car group, saw meetings as a chance to discuss and debate the issues. And so for them, they spent the good part of the day uh, in meetings, and that was totally normal for them. Um, that was how they got the work done. The other American team, which uh, came from Saturn Corporation, didn't like to spend very much time in meetings. In that sense, they were like the Germans or the, the people from Opel. But uh, they came together just to, um, to check in with each other and to see how they could build consensus. So that was the only reason for them to be at a meeting. Otherwise, they were often their little working groups. So you had three different teams all of whom had radically different ideas about what a meeting was supposed to be in the first place. Right. But nobody had actually stated or even thought to question the word meeting in the first place because meeting is something that everyone tosses around all the time, isn't it? Yes, that's correct. And as an anthropologist, you know, part of what anthropologists do is to try and look at our inbuilt innate assumptions about how things are supposed to work. Um, what some anthropologists call the social silences, the things that we don't normally talk about. Um, did you see that as part of your sort of <clears throat> main role at General Motors to go around and look at what people was, weren't talking about rather than what they were talking about? Yes, uh, of course, because when you are an anthropologist, your job is to uncover what is going on. That is the real reason for your, um, for your work. And part of what is going on is what's not going on. Uh, and so, so um, when you observe, you are constantly comparing back and forth with previous experiences that you've had uh, with the particular group that you're working with or with other groups to try to understand holistically um, what what are people saying? Why are they saying what they are saying? And how does that compare with what they are doing or with what they say they should be doing? So it's a kind of gap between rhetoric and reality or the stories that we all tell ourselves about what we're doing and what we're actually doing at work, which can often be completely different. Yes, that's correct. So when you went to the different groups of engineers and said, okay, you keep calling meetings to try and solve your problems and it's actually making the problem worse. How did they respond? Were they surprised or did they deny it? Well, they needed to work among themselves because there were so many technical issues, engineering, design issues, manufacturing issues and so on, business issues, uh, that, that they had to have meetings in order to communicate 
information to each other. So, so that aspect of it actually happened. But what was so frustrating for the three groups was that was that the the form of the meeting and the outcomes of the meeting were unexpected for them. They did not like how meetings were conducted. So in other words, the three groups had not settled in on a single meeting style. And as a result of that, uh, the frustration just increased over time. I, after a couple of months of observing them, I realized what was going on. Um, and it was far more complicated than just uh, differences in meeting styles. Uh, that was certainly uh, a symptom, but it got even um, more complex as I noticed that the meetings by some of the groups were used to try to um, prepare the, the ground for making a decision or for actually making a decision. And that then led into a whole focus on decision-making itself, how people actually make decisions. Right, and again, that's one of the things that people don't often talk about very clearly um, in different office cultures, because every office culture has a different kind of unstated assumption about how make, to make decisions, who makes decisions, right. but people often don't talk about it, do they? No, um, no, because when you are part of a culture, you assume that whatever you are doing is normal and it is the way that everybody else is doing it. And so it, it comes as a rude awakening when you figure out that people actually do things differently than you or your group. And then you frankly don't know quite what to do. So in some ways, one of the first things that any manager who's trying to blend together different cultural teams should do is ask everyone up front, you know, what do you expect a meeting to achieve and who do you think makes a decision and how should they make a decision and be very explicit about that. I think that would be enormously helpful because if nothing more, it would get the assumptions that people have in their heads on the table and people then can talk about those assumptions and they will see that their assumptions about something as simple, well, as complicated as meetings, um, really it can be um, discussed and decisions can be made about what, how do we want to run our meetings. In a moment, we'll return to the second part of our interview with Elizabeth Bridey. But first, let's hear from KPMG's new Global Head of Clients and Markets, Regina Mayer. Now, Regina, we've been hearing a lot today from Elizabeth Bridey on her background of trying to drive culture change in an organization to help businesses perform better. It's not always easy, but I'm curious, um, in your view, are CEOs ready to do this and really talk seriously about culture change? Um, or is there still resistance? Um, are attitudes towards this shifting or not? I definitely think CEOs are embracing the need to focus on culture and looking for ways to further transform their organizations. We, if we've learned nothing through the pandemic, if we, we've learned that it's really important to keep moving and changing and staying agile. 
In addition, on the back end of the pandemic, we saw the great resignation or the great rotation or the war for talent, whatever label you want to put on it, but people being able to vote with their feet and focusing on working for organizations that meet their values and that are driven in the same with regard to the same purpose that they have. So CEOs are and have to to be successful going forward, embracing purpose, the employee value proposition. We're talking about health, well-being in the workplace. It's a far more humane way of going to work and and being and living uh, and being able to show our home offices and, and talking about our, our children and our pets and things that are important to us outside of the workforce. And CEOs are transforming their cultures to accommodate what those ways of working will have to be in the future. So I guess the key point is that the pandemic didn't just change the way we work in terms of going to the office, it also changed the way that we imagine culture. And that's very interesting because you've had a really long career, um, very successful career working in the energy space, and now you're global head of clients and markets at KPMG. And I'm curious about what that experience has taught you because the energy and natural resources industries are well known for their wild cycles, big highs and lows. So what do you think your own learning over the years can show you about other sectors today? Well, I think there's some great lessons learned from what I've seen energy companies do successfully. They're incredibly innovative. They've had to make big bets and take big risks. That's part of the highs and lows that you've mentioned. They've had to learn how to be good global citizens because back in the day, natural resources weren't as abundant and prevalent all over the world in the ways that they are now. They've had to be resilient, dealing with lots of different changes, natural disasters, changes in politics, changes in regulatory regimes. So watching them be innovative, resilient, effectively managing risk as they make these big bets and how they deal with their stakeholders are, are the things that I've seen, I think global companies can can match and uh, to be successful. Now they're having to learn a whole new set of techniques and skills, how they pivot their businesses to adapt to climate change and decarbonize the planet, how they juggle multiple and competing investment profiles. It used to be they there were only a small number of plays that they could go after. Now there's almost an abundant innumerable number of investments that they could make and how they balance those investment decisions. And then stakeholder agendas are very different. What their investors might want from a profitability perspective versus what investors might want from a purpose and and taking care of future generations perspective are not always in concert. So there's a bunch of lessons that I think that they've learned that I've watched them do successfully and now watching them change and pivot into this next generation to reform the companies that they will be in the future. I think there's lots that we can take uh, in terms of perspective to inform our conversations with other companies across a number of sectors. And I'm very excited about that. So it's basically a pretty wild juggling act um, that faces most CEOs today. And a lot of CEOs would say, well, yes, that's true. And we don't really have necessarily the space to think too much about culture because we're dealing with all of these huge geopolitical risks on top of it. It's hard to predict the future, obviously, but how do you see, Regina, the future of companies evolving or the outlook for business in the next couple of years? I generally am pretty positive about the future of business. And you, that's when I lift my head up and look from a broader perspective. If you just looked at a six to nine month perspective, it's easy to get caught up in all the negatives that are just being thrown at us. Ever since COVID, 
we've really been in a state of almost near permanent crisis, and it's a crisis management. We sort of lurch from crisis to crisis. But when you take a step back and you look at how have we come from March of 2020 and how business looks different and how the world has adapted and how we're continuing to be successful and thrive, that's amazing, that transformation that we've all underwent, undergone. Not, not to dismiss the tragedy that we've all experienced by any means, but when I look at how agile and resilient corporates across the world are being, and the fact that we're really leaning into the humanity of what we do, the purpose of what we bring, and, and being better corporate citizens for much broader achievements, that makes me pretty optimistic about the future of, of business going forward. Well, that's a very encouraging note. And I think we can all agree that resilience and innovation are some of the key themes of the day. But thanks, Regina, for joining us on Global Perspectives. And now back to the second part of our interview with Elizabeth Bryde. Do you have any sense of how moving from in-person meetings to, say, Zoom or cyberspace affects all of this? Because... When you did your studies in General Motors, you were literally sitting there as a fly on the wall, if you like, in these stuffy office rooms in Detroit, <laughs> observing everybody as if, you know, as if you were an anthropologist in the jungle, literally watching these engineers come and go with all their rituals. Um, how does Zoom or how does, if not Zoom, but Microsoft Teams or any other kind of video platform during lockdown change all this, do you think? And is there enough discussion inside companies about these kind of issues? Well, I think one of the things that I've learned is how critically important it is for people to interact face to face before they do huge amounts of work on Zoom. And I say that uh, based on um, a number of studies, but one in particular involving NASA. NASA brought on the aeronautics side brought together a bunch of um, engineers from its research sites around the U.S. Uh, and wanted them to work together using um, collaborative technologies uh, like Zoom, though Zoom was not what they used, uh, and just work on a project together. Well, the engineers knew no one else in the group. They did not know each other's technical skill sets. They did not know how each other worked as people. They didn't even know anything about them and you want them to start working on a project together. It's really quite challenging. It turns out that as soon as the first visit happened, where all of the engineers got together in the same place, things started to change. And how did I know that? For one thing, the joking increased. Um, somebody would find out something about someone else and then make a little joke about it not in any kind of rude way, but just to, to, just to make conversation. Uh, and, and then you would see people smiling. And then you would see people relaxing. It makes an extraordinary difference if you have that ability to bring people together uh, so that they can meet each other and try to get to know each other first and then put them to work using whatever technologies uh, or face-to-face -face opportunities they might have. Well, that's fantastic. And that's a wonderful example, which I think should be challenging everybody who's listening. 
um, as we try and work out what's going to happen in the hopefully post-COVID world. But um, but thank you, Elizabeth. Fascinating stories. I guess, you know, two or three key points. One is that <clears throat> if you are trying to do any kind of globalization strategy, mergers, et cetera, et cetera, you need to think about what you're not thinking about or what you're not talking about. Don't assume that just calling meetings to try and resolve the problems are going to work unless you all sit around and realize what a meeting actually is, that ritual. And perhaps the most important thing of all is it shows the power of good old fashioned observation, not just in remote parts of the world as an anthropologist, but inside companies too, at the grassroots or in the boardrooms or on the Zoom calls increasingly. So, Elizabeth Bridie, thanks for joining us on Global Perspectives. I'm Gillian Tett. Join us next month where we'll be chatting to another inspiring business observer. And if you want to hear more of KPMG's global podcast, head now to home.kpmg.